music, news, interviews, live events, and more. Welcome to the Hivecast with Matt Pinfield. Hey, it's the Hivecast with Matt Pinfield, and today my guest is Elijah Blue. And uh, Elijah is a very good friend of mine back in New York City, so I invited him up. Elijah, it's amazing because how I was first introduced to you was as a child, literally seeing yeah. you on the cover as a baby on uh, People magazine. Yeah, yeah. Uh, when you were born, of course, you know, your, your mom is Cher, your yeah. dad is uh, Greg Allman. Yeah, yeah. Um, is it weird? Do you ever look back? Have you seen that picture or that cover any time since you were a kid? I just remember them making me wear sweatshirts that had rhinestones. And at the last second, they pulled it down so my little shoulder was exposed, and that traumatized me for years. <laughs> it's an amazing thing. The rhinestones. Well, I mean, so growing up with that kind of lineage, yeah. Elijah, you know, I've known you for a long time, and I know how much you know about music. I know about your creative side through yeah. Dead Z, your solo stuff. Yeah. Having music around your household from the time you were a kid, what was your first introduction to music, and what was that like for you as a um, kid there? It has a lot to do with with MTV, I mean, it, it, it because when I kind of got like cognizant enough to be into music, it was right when MTV came on the air. So I mean, that was something big. I had like kind of just an uncensored access to television, and so I really got that first wave that everyone got of everything from the Boggles to Duran Duran. Duran Duran. I mean, that was Duran Duran. Dude, really was the first kind of huge thing for me. I mean, it was really that. Was, I was absolutely enamored with their like style and I was granted I was six but I remember being on the bus with kids going to school and we would show like you know the first record and then Rio and you know that was the first band I really really was into Flock of Seagulls like New Romantic was my first kind of real love I mean I'd been exposed to Kiss Stand Up LA things like yeah, that too yeah I'd been exposed to Kiss I'd been exposed to these things by way of my just family environment but the first thing that I discovered that was like mine was like the New Romantic you know yeah the Duran Duran, Gary Newman, Flock of Seagulls, and I just, the lipstick and the, the hairdos, that was what was in my mind all day long, you know? And, you know, so I remember, uh, you know, you and I talking years ago, I mean, obviously, with your mom and dad, you know, having, you know, other musician friends or famous yeah. friends, one of the coolest stories was, which I was, remember being surprised about, was wondering what somebody like Tom Cruise would listen to musically. He gave you for a birthday present a cassette of T-Rex, the slider or yeah, electric yeah. warrior, right? It was the slide. What's the one where he's got the top hat on yeah. the cover, the black and white? Yeah. It's the slider, right? Yeah, it is actually the With slider. With Jeepster and... and it's know. got like Baby Strange exactly. and Exactly, yeah. yeah. He gave that to me like Christmas. I thought, oh, 85, we were living right here over on Union Square. And like this was kind of before a lot of the madness with him. And that's all I'll really say. But that was cool. I didn't... I, you know, at that time, and I wasn't really into T-Rex. I got into T-Rex a lot later. But that was just cool getting that cassette because yeah, it's kind of showed years later. You can see that the dude was like kind of hip. Yeah, I was so, like, yeah. oh, that's, I was, yeah. I was really uh, surprised and happy to hear that Tom Cruise was into uh, T Rex. Yeah, you know, Tony Visconti has told me the producer of that record. Yeah, um, many times is you know that um, the picture on the cover, the famous picture with the top hat, it's credited to Ringo Starr as taking the picture, but Tony claims he took the picture. I mean, and that. And that Mark Boland really knew that, but he just wanted to get give Ringo the credit on the thing. Yeah, I mean, him and R Ringo and him were really close. I mean, they were. They, they, you could see with some of those older movies of the, you could see that relationship between Ringo and Mark. They were like brothers, right? Yeah, they really were. I yeah. mean, and I talked to Ringo once about that right after the Born to Boogie movie was remastered. Mm -hmm. Tony remastered all the, did all the redid all the sound, and the, and the film was remastered that yeah. Mark that uh, Ringo had done. And I remember Ringo saying to me. 
you know, I was in LA, we were hanging out. Yeah. And uh, Ring, I, I said to Ring, I go, you know, it's uh, I really, what do you think of the new remaster of the Born to Boogie? And he said, ah, oh, I love it. He said, you know, he was one of my best friends, and they took him way too young uh, from us. Yeah. You know, that's the, that's how it goes. <laughs> but isn't it in an odd situation when you think about it, Elijah, that Mark Bolin wrote songs about cars, but he was terrified of driving. And then, prophetically, he ends up dying in a car crash. I drive a Rolls Royce because it's good for my voice. Yeah, exactly. (laughs) I kind of like that lyric. It's a great lyric. So what about when you discovered your parents' music? You know, like It wasn't really like that, dude. I mean, it was more just I was so kind of off on my own tangent of music. And then anything having anyone who's ever, like, you know, wanted to kind of be in rock and roll is going to do exactly what's antithetical of what their parents are doing so i had that same kind of knee-jerk reaction just i wasn't going to just gratuitously be in to some rock or, or anything yeah. because i was just like i, I don't want to be in anything that my parents are gonna do that's just not how it goes that's not what my friends are doing that's not what i'm going to do so by virtue of that i was just kind of like not interested and so then you know i was in all these kind of environments not just like kind of growing up in LA but back on the east coast and when you're in like a kind of east coast boarding school environment you have just 150 or 180 kids we're all swapping stuff we're all making mixtapes we're all kind of you know I just got into this or this and oh did you just hear this album called Appetite for Destruction came out check like it was you know we were all kind of each other's alert system of whatever was kind of coming up and sort of, and so I, that was really organic man i always had that real that's how it was all over the country and all over the world for everybody you know i mean that that's you always kind of found out about shit through your peers and through those magical moments of maybe being up late and watching some performance or whatever so i came into pretty much everything like really organically and really kind of i feel like how you're supposed to come to know something new now, when did you start playing guitar and deciding that you wanted to write music yourself? I'm not. I, mean, I started playing guitar like around like nine or ten. I just had I had a few sitting around. I just never really got the desire. And then one day I was like, oh, I kind of want to do that. And so then I think I'd seen like La Bamba or something. That was the first thing I learned how to play, or like Sunshine of Your Love or some like Cream shit or whatever. And so I just you know, dude, you get into it and you just the, the way that feels there is so just like rebellious and like. You know that the feeling of playing guitar is just something that's not. I can't really. You know, I mean, it's the greatest, like, kind of thing. It's such a. If if you if it clicks with you, there's nothing that compares to, you know, that thing in, in terms of some sort of creative outlet. And it's you know, I don't know. It. Uh, I kind of stuck with it. I really taught myself how to play listening to Appetite for Destruction. Yeah, you know, was- I, mean, I just I sat and played to Appetite and learned all of Slash's riffs. That's I mean I just dude that was what did it. You know I think that record is one of it's one of those seminal records that it's made a lot of people pick up the guitar. Greatest rock and roll records in the history of I, I mean dude it's unbelievable. It really is. Yeah. You know, and I mean, I mean people across the board will say that. That's why. Yeah, it's a punk inspired <laughs> rock record, and like that's what. Jelly Biafra and the Attitude documentary that Don Letts did, you know, t- throws down in that way. And he's like, you know, what a lot of these things that are happening is punk inspired rock. And that's guns. I mean, that, the guns had this, so they were like punk music, but they were like straight rock and roll. And that's to be like that organic and that legit with that much charisma, that shit's rare. With all those guys. And, you know, Duff, of course, being the ultimate punk yeah, in the band, right? For sure, yeah. He I was, mean, they, yeah, they were all coming with their own little flavors from before and this. And it's just one of those things that all work. Those five personalities just whoosh. 
you know and, and just and watching just, that was unbelievable watching that explode and being there did i would mean you know i'd be drinking with slash and just steven adler sip, sipping me jack and cokes backstage at the mtv awards like in 88 and i was 12 and 13 the shit was amazing <laughs> you know? yeah, true. Yeah. those guys are corrupting you as, as a youth Absolutely. which is what you would expect from them you want them to do that of course without a question yeah. so tell me about how dead sea ended up starting um, that was just kind of out of necessity. I just started it. It was what you know, year was that? It was me and Ren Hockey and my other friend from school, Alec Puro, and we started it. In, and we made the demo in '95 with then a kind of unknown producer, Josh Abraham, who would go on to have you know many, 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 many platinum records under his belt. And so we, I just yeah, dude, I was kind of. Listen, I remember leaving prep school and like listening to the first type of negative record and just hearing some of that, something about that kind of real post abstracted Sabbath kind of thing with like Gary Newman keyboards spoke to me. And so I took that and then got into a little bit more of Bowie and I just was exposed to a lot of stuff between 93 and 95 that then made me cultivate what I would then do in a really early stage just made the demo and then you know I, I brought it here and and no it was like no 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 but seymour stein and Sire records like let's do it and so you know that was always the mark of something real if seymour said yes and everyone else said no you knew you had something dope i mean as, as history would show by his long list yeah well let's just take two things yeah. that he did Ramones, Madonna. Okay, yeah. there you go, right there. And, yeah. and of course, there's Talking Heads. I mean, yeah. there's a million, yeah. there's a hundred other things. Uh, Seymour's. He took amazing. us to the spot where he signed Madonna in Little Italy that one night. He told us like the whole story, like when she was just like this little chick and like rags playing at Danceteria and whatever. Yeah. But he was amazing. I don't. Yeah. I mean, he he really is one of the more special. You know, I mean, the guy coined the phrase "new wave." He and Linda Stein and everything that they had done were really seminal to music for sure you know i mean depeche mode ministry i mean the, the list the sire list is you know as we know is like talking heads massive. i mean it you're, just goes on you're in you're in good company yeah yeah it's absolutely so, true but we ended up you know we th those years were like formative and the the songs we made for that didn't end up being what we would release on commencement through dreamworks in 2002 we which was our first you know major label release so we would kind of use that those sire years to kind of cultivate something and then you know ultimately kind of go into an even more refined kind of place when we got to dreamworks right yeah, yeah. So. so what ended up happening with that sire deal so you signed with sire but you didn't end oh, up dude, releasing? Had, it was so crazy yeah i mean we were up here we were in dreamland we were sire had was with electra and then sire seymour's like i'm gonna leave electra and so he went and then he went by himself and then london ffrr came in and then at that point, I had then done a little bridge thing with Warner Brothers and Sire. And then Phil Q at Warner Brothers was kind of like, yo, dude, Sire's about to get bought out. I was like, yo, Phil, give me my shit back. And so I then was a free agent. And then we signed to DreamWorks. This was like in 99, 2000. And so we would take some songs from that initial Sire record and then put it with a bunch of new songs for what would be commencement on DreamWorks. Yeah, so, Keys to Gramercy Park became exactly. a hit for you guys. Being the main song, exactly. And um, and the record, of course, on gold. It was pretty cool. I mean, not, we didn't get a lot of radio, dude, at all. You know what I'm saying? I mean, we, you got. We, I mean, I, most of those those sales to go gold on that record, I think, had a lot to do with touring. I mean, you were part of that. We, yeah, we, scene we did. We did a Orgy lot of, and Corn and yeah, all those bands from that and area. Thirty seconds and Thirty Seconds um, of Mars. You know, you know, it was uh, us and Thirty Seconds. Like really. Like stood away from like the new metal shit, even though I respected a lot of those bands and those bands were having massive success at that point. I still that wasn't we weren't about new metal. We were about some kind of other, you know, um, abstracted kind of artistic, 
you know, I, I don't even know at that point what. We were just following this kind of weird intuition. We had a really kind of weird formulaic look and all this kind of stuff. And a lot of people were kind of put off by it. But the people who were into it and the kids who were into it were like, you know, we, we got them. So, you know, that was interesting. And, you know, I, I to, to our own disservice sometimes with a lot of like mainstream stuff, we were just kind of more like, nah, we're going to just do it our way. We don't give a fuck. And that's so, what you did. Yeah. So, you know, I think that when you're kind of being compelled by that, by like some kind of weird sound you're hearing in your head, you get kind of possessed and overtaken by that. And so sometimes maybe some of the logic of the business takes second seat to that. And that sometimes to an artist's own disservice. But like that's we just that's how we were. And so there was no stopping us you know, with that. Well, you've always followed your own path. I remember you and I turning each other on to music, just hanging out. For sure. With my one iPod. Remember the iPod with the 22,000 that was, songs? That was, that was amazing. The circumstance was a little bit of a tricky situation, but just the fact that it was able to go down the way it was. I mean, I, the, I remember those conversations we had as being some of the most, you know, there's not anybody really that I can go into the depths of music like you and I can, man, and really get, we, we go deep and we know details and we get deep into lots of, <laughs> you know, lots of, a, a wide variety of genres and that's rare, you know? Yeah. And it was great. I remember one of the albums that we were, became, uh, that we really fell in love with was Love for Forever, Forever Changes. Changes. Yeah, 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 for sure. Which is uh, just a classic 1960s record. Yeah. That was kind of overlooked at the time, right? I mean, it was a. Uh, yeah. They had the billboard on Sunset Boulevard, but I mean, the doors were definitely the breadwinners yeah, uh, for, for sure. Electra at that time, even though Arthur Lee was the one who got them signed. I mean, that's just the way things happen, you know? Ab and, absolutely. You yes. know, and, and Morrison was, of course, such a, a dynamic character and yeah. wrote those hits, but that was such a great record. In retrospect, it's loved by so many people. Yeah, I mean, it's really, in England, it's really up there. They put it up there with Pet Sounds and Sgt. Pepper's. I mean, they really respect this record and this dude for, you know, a lot more than any of the kind of the respect that he got in America. I mean, the English always are kind of the tastemakers that put their stamp on things and that that's what the rest of the world looks to. And, you know, they certainly revere Arthur Lee and Forever Changes as they revere Pet Sounds and Sgt. Pepper's. I know they do. You know, Florence yeah. Welsh and Florence and the Machine told me how her dad would play that record. Yeah. On and on as she was a kid growing up. And, so and you can sick. only imagine that so many other people, yeah, yeah. young musicians, grown ups, parents were listening to those for, records as well. For sure, for sure. It's great stuff. Um, I think it's important to, you know, look back at a lot of that stuff. There's a lot of things that I rediscovered you know, kind of, I was really into all my kind of heavy music and like death metal and all this kind of crap. But then I kind of went always into a more of a singer songwriter, lis listening to like Joni Mitchell and Leonard Cohen and, you know, some of the heaviest songs that I had written for commencement. I did it in the context of listening, driving around in my car, listening to like Joan Baez. You know what I'm saying? So sometimes what you put in to the sort of thing, what comes out could be absolutely the opposite, right? You know? Oh, yeah. You might be listening to, like, Blue and Court and, Court and Spark. Or, of course, yeah, of course. Or, of course. You, or songs about love and hate or, yeah, you know. Absolutely, absolutely. All those, all those incredible Court and Spark is really, is really amazing. I love Court and Spark. It's a great record, great Johnny sure. record. So, yeah, and, you know, we got up the road after commencement and then we took a little kind of break. We had some issues with DreamWorks. The DreamWorks got bought out. And then we would slowly write Phantasm War, which we would then release under um, Immortal Sony. So that was, and then we toured Family Values and we went on tour with the Deftones. And, you know, we really loved that record. And that's a really, I think, important record. And it didn't obviously do what Commencement did. But I think it was something that 
still, you know, songs like Carrying Over, Better Than You Know, um, Health and Theory. These are songs that kind of, if I look at just the whole pantheon of Dead Z tunes, these are as quintessential to what we were trying to do as Key to Gramercy Park and the other things, and it just kind of a little bit flew under the radar. How did your so, parents, you know, how did uh, how did your parents react to your record? And were, they, were they very proud when they you got your first gold record? What was the reaction? Yeah, no, it's, I think that it's the kind of thing where... I don't know, man. It was always... My dad, in his biography, just came out. He was like, you know, my son's music's very scary. It's weird, man. I never got that much feedback from my parents. And, I, and, I, and I'm sure that everyone looks for that. But I really can say honestly that I wasn't really directly looking for that because I knew I was making something that wasn't meant for their generation that they wouldn't understand. You know? Right. It wasn't something that was necessary. It wasn't like, you know, look, mom, top of the world. It wasn't that. Yeah. Well, I was joking because, you know, my, my daughter is really into pop and even Broadway stuff. And that's rebelling yeah. against her dad, my of youngest course. daughter. <laughs> it's rebelling against me, right? Yeah. You know, I, which is what you, what you expect. And then, you know, <laughs> look, then I have lots of other different interests in terms of things. You know, I just, Mickey Avalon's record that just came out loaded. I did a song on there called Mickey's Girl, me and Alec. Uh, did it together and you know actually we, we cleared it with Lou and when we played it for Lou Lou was like yo dude this is one of the best like kind of variations be it you know someone taking the beat or this or that from what and track it, from Charlie's Girl yeah we took we did Mickey's Girl you gotta hear it it's really good oh cause and you it, know I love Charlie's yeah, Girl yeah no no we did Mickey's Girl <laughs> and we just changed all the lyrics but the hook is similar and so um, you know, Lou was absolutely over the moon about it in terms of. And we're yeah, talking he, about he, Lou Reed. He, yeah, he he rarely clears stuff, and he cleared it. You know. Oh yeah, I mean, you know, you know how he can be. And, uh, I've had the conversation with Lou about Charlie's Girl, and he said uh, every line of that song is absolutely true. It really yeah. happened. I mean, he wrote it about it's for a great baby. album, man. Yeah, yeah. I mean, Coney that, Island Baby doesn't get a lot of love that it, it should. The later stuff is really Street Hassle is one that I really kind of connect with just the grit of street hassle right? yeah you know i mean if you look yeah. at his body of work in the 70s the street hassle is really really dope you're yeah. a big lou fan i know He's you a are massive lou fan yeah so he did so mickey's girl so you rewrote the lyrics and what did you did you actually use a sample of that guitar part did you guys replay it drums I, 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 no we, we read it every everything from scratch yeah we, I, I, I did i redid everything from scratch i mean so but i matched everything all the elements that i wanted to be really matched i matched them perfectly i think people should go check that out of your uh your, i'm sure yeah, you're listening right out. now mickey avalon's loaded it's sick yeah and it's um, mickey's girl and then go back and listen to charlie's girl too by lou yeah and do and compare the two i think it's very cool so what about so what, you've also talked about doing a solo thing yeah too. you know the last years i've been just kind of laying low dude i'm kind of getting back into doing things um doing the song for mickey kind of made me want to start like producing a little bit and writing songs and so you know i think we, we've been talking the members of dead Z a little bit here and there if we find just everyone's got different schedules now but doing a kind of three song live um performance that's something akin to like you know what Floyd would do it like live at Pompeii. We want to do some kind of a live performance that's just unique to that circumstance. That's not really an audio uh, piece of product, or that's not exclusively a video, but just a, a, a like a forty-five minute long form performance and something that is singular, right? Not touring, not this. So we've been talking about that. We've also been talking about doing a documentary, um, and so you know this is kind of what we're thinking about next on the agenda you know, a documentary would be cool i think it i think it would be good to happen yeah 
What about you as far as writing a book yourself? Do you feel like it's nah, not, that's not, not interesting, right? Yeah. No, not, not for me. Yeah, people ask me all the time. They're like, not, why don't you not write Not until you're like yeah. 60 and you have a little <laughs> bit more of the stories kind of come uh, out. And know? that's my thing. You know, it's funny. People ask me, why don't you write you know, a book of your memoirs? I'm like, no, I'm starting to write a series of books, but it's all music info stuff. Yeah. It's, it's it's what you want to want from me. It's not, it's I not dishing yeah, bullshit. My, I mean, Alan Light wrote, Ghost Wrote, My Dad's Book, which just came out, which I haven't read, but I mean, I've seen some of his interviews and seen some excerpts and it looks kind of interesting and i think that where he's at and just looking back that's probably <laughs> the appropriate time to do that but you know i think the the smaller kind of version of that would be doing some sort of interesting like i think documentary film is really i, I there's some amazing music docs i mean i think that the filth and the fury and some of the th stuff that julian temple has done is absolutely amazing where they're really Telling the story, but in a really illustrated way of using kind of the media that's relevant. I mean, you, you see it a lot differently done than just a guy sitting on a chair in a backyard. And then, like, yeah. inter interspliced with, like, footage of of live or whatever. I mean, I think that... Yeah, I like the, the Filth and the Fury for that reason. And, yeah, I, and in many ways, you know, Julian Temple at that point was making up for the great rock and roll swindle, which was course, Malcolm's... Yeah. Malcolm basically trying to take all the credit for the Sex Pistols. Yeah. And as, as, as Johnny Lydon said... Create me, you can create me, and I thought that was one of the greatest lines ever because yeah. you couldn't. For sure, you for know. Sure. So I, I thought that uh, that film really set the record straight. Yeah, and I just, you know, there's been a lot of those really good. The last like seven years have shown a lot of great music docs and just the kind of medium becoming something else. You know, it becoming something like really that co goes to Sundance and goes to the film festivals and they just sweet man you know, yeah really like did you see the Lemmy one or the Foo Fighters one or any of those yeah I mean my favorite obviously has been the New York New York Doll the Filth and the Fury yeah even the Arthur King yeah Punk Attitude yeah I mean you know obviously you know the, the George Harrison one was unbelievable yeah um, the Bob Dylan one was I mean these are done by Scorsese and these are unbelievable <laughs> yeah so, No Direction Home is just unbelievable. One, of, one of my favorites oh, so good I mean because it really <laughs> tells the story I mean you, you really you know can see it from his perspective you know, I mean, that's, that's what I like about those. Yeah, they they all came out really great. Well, I want, we're looking forward to your next record. But I don't know. Yeah, we'll see, man. I'm, just, I'm a little bit lazy, but I'll churn something out at some point. But I'm, sure. I'm glad you came by to do the show today. For Come sure. Come and do dude. the podcast. And just check out that new Mickey Avalon record, yeah, Loaded. Sick. Loaded. And hear yeah. uh, Mickey's Girl. It's good. And yeah. uh, go back and pick up the other two Deadsy albums. You should for definitely sure, grab yeah. them if you haven't heard them yet. But Elijah, sick. thanks for coming by. Thank you, Matt. It's always a pleasure, dude. <laughs> This has been the Hivecast with Matt Pinfield. For all things music, news, interviews, live events, and more, go to mtvhive.com.